Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast, Your Expert Advantage, a higher level of management consulting. This podcast is produced by the Canadian Association of Management Consultants, CMC Canada. My name is James Grieve, and I am a certified management consultant based in British Columbia and a member of CMC Canada. The goal of this podcast is to provide our listeners with great thought leadership, insights, and actionable items you can take into the workplace or into your daily lives. Our audience is management consultants, people in the business community, or aspiring consultants. Part of what we do here is tell great stories from those who've earned their certified management consultant designation or those who work closely with certified management consultants or that can benefit the profession. CMC designation is the profession's only international certification recognized in over 40 countries. In today's episode, we have a fabulous guest with us and we're focused on the important topic of Indigenous relations in Canada and how this relates to management consulting. Our guest is Flavio Caron. He is a Anishinaabe and an entrepreneur who has the privilege to bring knowledge to corporations, organizations, governments, and communities. Building understanding and relationships with Indigenous communities is both complex and fundamental. Flavio is a guide. Flavio is honored to support reconciliation and growth through his work in the fields of cultural, economic, and social opportunity. Flavio joins us now. Welcome, Flavio. First, as we get into it here, before we get into it, just introduce yourself and uh, tell me a little bit about your experience in consulting and uh, the great work that you do. Well, that's a good way to start. Almost want to end it right there with the great work that I do. That's uh, all. All depends on perspective. Uh, I'll start uh, myself. Where we are today, we're we're here in Kelowna, and uh, I guess uh, in this part of the world, we'd be on traditional and ancestral, unceded, traditional territory of um, of Silk peoples, uh, Okanagan Nation, Okanagan Nation Alliance, and and related groups, and a lot of communities and peoples have been through here over hundreds and thousands of years. So uh, certainly to recognize that, and maybe today that might come up a little bit as part of our conversation as well. So thank you. Thanks. That's excellent. Thank you, Flavio. And, you know, you and I have had several conversations in the past and in, on the work that's been done in Indigenous communities with consultants and consulting and the important role uh, that reconciliation plays as it pertains to business economic development in the consulting industry. And what I think would be really valuable for our listeners today is to get your perspective on these topics and how you see this, where it's brought us to this point and where you see this evolving going forward. Uh, big question there, James. And I think uh, we probably have about 55 minutes, uh, probably need 55 hours. And I'll start off by sharing that uh, if whatever I share would be one person's experience, one person's interpretation, I may bring some, you know, gathering of information, speaking to people across the country or, or British Columbia, Indigenous, non-Indigenous. Um, but in the end, uh, every every community, every individual is going to have their own perspective on that. Anyone in Canada or around the world, reconciliation, truth and reconciliation is not a new new topic. There's been many places in the world I've walked through it, whether it's Rwanda or uh, Australia. Um, there, a form of this has gone on in Northern Ireland with the troubles in the seventies. So whenever there's a, you know, a group of, uh, a group of people that have potentially actually caused, you know, some trauma to another group, 
you know, there's conversations that we have. So we work together to to build relationships moving forward. So <clears throat> as far as my perspective would go, uh, first thought coming out of the gate is uh, is oftentimes we use the word reconciliation and it's an appropriate word. We have a different connection as Canadians to that. Um, but we always have to keep front and center that uh, it's actually truth and reconciliation. And until we get past the truth, get through the truth, which uh, is hard work. Sometimes it's easier work than other times, but it's very good. It's necessary. Until we get past the truth, um, we really can't you know, begin to focus on reconciliation. So sometimes it, people will share, and I, I think I agree with that, that uh, in a lot of circles, we are, you know, put the cart before the horse. Reconciliation coming up before, you know, we may not know the, the whys that they're necessary. So it's an imperative for all citizens in Canada. And we come at it uh, from from that different space. So, um, on that uh, truth side, as an individual, as an organization, business, or consultant, as a nation, uh, until we've gone through this, understood uh, our history in Canada, we're not we're not really doing our job. So we have to begin uh, with those components. Uh, um, it's almost like taking the taking an example of two individuals. You know, you've got, um, and we all have experience with this. Uh, you have two people, maybe they're partners, could be in business, it could be in life. And one person causes some kind of harm to another. And at some point, the person who's received the harm says, hey, you know, some stuff has gone on here. We have to address this. We have to talk about this. I need to share what's going on. And the person who's caused the harm or that trauma has a has a responsibility, has to, has to listen has to understand, has to create the space, take the time for the for the person who's had harm caused to them to 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 get it out. And uh, once that takes place to a substantive enough degree, then you can move to the reconciliation. If the relationship is worth to keep going, then you know you can work at it as life partners, perhaps. And uh, not much different between cultures as well. So in uh, what we have in Canada is, uh, uh, you know, it's an imperative. You know, we, we're working together. We have a country. We are neighbors. Uh, through the Delgamuk decision in 1997, uh, Chief Justice uh, Lemaire stated um, very clearly, we're all here to stay. And we're neighbors. So talk, negotiate, sit down at the tables, understand each other. If you keep going to the courts, to resolve different issues, which was the trend and is to a degree today, but it appears to be getting better. If we keep going to the courts to resolve different challenges that we have, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose, uh, nobody's going to be happy, and reconciliation won't happen. So a lot of it is discussions, learning about each other, with each other, and uh, and having conversations just like we're doing now and people listening in. No, I think that's a wonderful perspective on it. And it's the right perspective. And, you know, the the core of this is truth and then reconciliation, which is a really good point. And I think, you know, the fact that we're having this type of conversation now, and we're open to this and welcoming is the, the message we want to share with our audience and the consulting community. So it's not something that we all know about or understand. And I think it's really important to talk to people who are of members of Indigenous communities and and leaders like yourself to understand how we as business leaders or people who are running businesses or consulting to businesses can contribute to this 
truth and reconciliation in our everyday lives. So the, the concept you introduced that, you know, having the conversations, not resolving this in court, not a zero sum game or you win, I lose type of situation. How are some of the other ways that we can contribute to this um, truth and reconciliation in our daily lives or in, or in business? I think uh, number one, if we, if I was to answer that, I would uh, go to go to the source. Uh, truth and reconciliation comes out through the commission itself. So, 2015, uh, the final report is issued. <clears throat> so many survivors of residential schools shared their stories, and um, the one recommendation that they came forward with on this reconciliation path is for Canadians again going back to learn the history. So first step, how do we learn? You can, you can educate yourself. You can take a course, a class. There's online learning. There's conversations with neighbors. You might have family members who have connections to communities. You can, you know, myself, I'm constantly sharing. Go to YouTube as well. You know, I'm, uh, I have um, what I used to share was undiagnosed ADD. Uh, my kids uh, and uh, everybody around me will say otherwise. Uh, it's well diagnosed. But um, I can go to YouTube and I can type in a, a specific subject matter heading. I can choose the appropriate source, a legal source, cultural business, perhaps. And um, and I can choose the length of the video that suits my learning time that I have or my learning style. And I can I can pay attention and I can learn. So we have to learn the history. And today I'll probably mention that another 10 times. But it is really important. And then there's a hundred other ways that um, that we could support um, all of this work. And uh, as as we go along today, you know, we'll touch on a number of them. But uh, it's a process. And in this uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, 94 calls to action. I don't want to get too technical about them. But it's important. There's one in there, number 92, that relates to corporations. And that would be the business community in general. And so the, the commission itself calls upon corporate Canada to um, take this thing called the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and uh, use it as a framework for reconciliation. So, I mean, the answer is kind of there. It's not easy, still requires a lot of interpretation and work. But if we're going to implement recon uh, reconciliation, we need to understand the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. and then pluck out all the good things out of this document, what they call the principles, the norms, and the standards, and change the way we do business day to day, change the way we have relationships, change the way we communicate. And um, they also mentioned very clearly, change corporate policy. Because policy, we all know, if uh, you know guidelines are one thing and, and uh, promises to meet are another thing, but until corporations and governments change policy, I mean, that's what guides what we do. So we have to get to the real nuts and bolts of it all as well. <clears throat> so um, as we work our way through today and, and share, and I'd also like to, before I forget, James, is, uh, you know, to thank you for the opportunity as well and share. Uh, it's been, uh, it's been really cool learning about you and the work you're doing and, and uh, you, you inspire me as well. And uh, it's, uh, it's good to call you a friend at this point. Oh, and, and likewise, and, you know, so thankful of your time here to join us today. And, you know, when you mentioned the United, De United Nations Declaration, um, the heart and the road, the root of this is communication and good citizenship. And that carries forward into business. And it isn't just something that walks out the door of corporate citizenship when people leave at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. I mean, you have to carry this through 
throughout your life. And I've had uh, discussions with other Indigenous leaders and elders and respected mentors of mine, you know, with now the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation, which is September 30th, and people wearing the orange shirt campaigns, which is great to bring attention to it. But they clearly indicate to me that it's it's not one day, it's 24-7-365. And I think people don't consciously just, you know, uh, celebrate definitely the wrong word, but acknowledge this on one day. But what are some of the other ways that you can embrace, you know, truth and reconciliation throughout the year and not just have it as one day of national truth and reconciliation, which is September 30th? Uh, I'm going to share a story that was passed on to me uh, and the whole concept of stories before we move on. Indigenous communities throughout all history were what are called oral societies, which meant that uh, the truth that they kept, all of their knowledge, they kept through stories, repeatedly telling the stories, which uh, there's a lot of principles to this, which, you know, elders possessed more knowledge because they'd been around longer to absorb so many, so much of this knowledge and, and, and wisdom through the stories. <clears throat> so as, um, as we uh, share, so even when I say I'll, I'll tell you a story, in Indigenous communities uh, as part of a principle, if a community member and you're doing work with them shares a story about their community, something that's happened, a process, demographics, social interactions, way to do business, um, there's a different connection to a, a proprietary value in their story. Because in Western societies, we've had books for a long time. We've had the printing press for maybe 550 years or so. And uh, whereas Indigenous communities, they didn't have, didn't use those books. Equally sophisticated systems for keeping knowledge, but but very different. So uh, if I was to hear a story in a community, I would actually listen. I might put down my pen as a community member is sharing information in a form of a story. Or I'd certainly ask them and say, you know, counselor or or Mary, do you mind if I um, take some notes on the story you're sharing? Uh, I'll be very careful not to to write down too many details. I just like to, you know, something to prompt me in the future with remembering the information you're sharing. Most of the time, someone in the community will say, yeah, go ahead, take all the notes you want, but thank you for asking. It's not as simple as just writing down someone else's story. So a long way to introduce the the story I have where my wife shared with me a long time ago. She had gone out uh, into the community. She came back and said, I'd like to run something by you. And I said, sure, go ahead. And she said, I was just at the mall and came out of the mall. And there's two local nations very close by where I live. And she came out and uh, she said, um, there was a person standing there, a woman with uh, three young children. And it's really hard to, to tell. She said they were, they, they were, they looked distinctly from the community, local First Nations members and smiles on their faces. And she walked out and she said to the, to the, the older person who could have been the mom, could have been the grandmother, could have been the auntie, could have been the sister. But she said these words. She just said, it sure is a nice day out, isn't it? And the woman looked up and said, it sure is. And thank you so much. And so my wife said, oh my goodness, thank you. Thank you for what? And the woman said, thank you so much for noticing us and saying hi. Most of your people don't. And so she said, what did that mean? And I thought, well, I think it's kind of self-explanatory. You know, there's community groups and not just indigenous peoples, but many subgroups who 
to the you know, majority of peoples at different times for different reasons are invisible. So just the simple act of saying hello and smiling is a reconciliatory act, you know, building those bridges. Um, they certainly can have, happen at the, the higher levels, you know, working towards employment and indigenous representation and supporting education and cultural identity. We can go into the higher things, but it also happens just on, on the street as well. Just looking at people as human beings, as fellow citizens, as friends, as parents and brothers and sisters, and just saying hello. And I think that's a big component to all of this. There's a sometimes, and, and I think if we're, tr we're truthful, most organizations and individuals will say there's a, you know, it's almost like they, they feel like they're walking on eggshells when they're going to converse with different indigenous groups, visiting communities. It's not universal. It's a strong generalization. And, you know, we need to, we need to take risks. You know, we're all people. Just ask questions, smile, make mistakes, apologize, humility, respect, and keep the conversations going. So um, in a long way, it's, uh, you know, uh, for, for business groups, you have your personal side, have conversations at home, talk with your kids. Most of us have kids coming home that are learning a lot more about Indigenous history than we ever imagined. And some parents are trying to think to themselves, geez, I, I can't answer your questions. They're coming home and asking questions about history. So um, have conversations with your family. And then when it comes time to the workplace, to put those components aside, uh, both as a business interest, there's a business case to build relationships so that we can all work together and, and, and work in, in a business situation. But then there really are. Do we decide that there's a responsibility for society? The history of Canada, this is my opinion. It's only one person's opinion. I think we have a pretty great country. That's my opinion. I certainly won't speak on anyone's behalf. But we also have a, a history where, you know, one half of my family was severely traumatized and pushed through the policies of assimilation on behalf of the federal government. Um, I keep a Canadian flag sometimes outside my place. I celebrate Canada Day. Not everyone does. Complicated relationship. But, um, you know, we, we have these histories. And uh, does society, you know, owe it to everyone to learn? Learn about our, you know, tough past and, uh, and, and move forward as, uh, you know, to, to nation built and take it seriously. What you and I are doing right here now, just taking a little bit of time in the tiniest way is nation building. And if somebody listens, if we do our work together and goes off and picks up a book or watches a YouTube video or, you know, uh, signs up for an online course and, and learns, then we're doing our job. You know, we're, we're building our nation. Well, those are really good points. And at the heart of it is humanity and, and these relationships and communication, as you mentioned earlier. And, you know, there are, there may be people listening to this podcast who think, well, I don't consult in Indigenous communities. I don't do business with Indigenous communities. How is this relevant to me? Well, the relevance is that we all do, we're humans at the heart of this and the root of it. And you may not be doing business currently with Indigenous communities, but we're all in this together. And and the, the thought of how do we prepare ourselves when we have that opportunity or don't just wait until you have a, a consulting engagement that's within an Indigenous community. How do you embrace, you know, participation and representation with people in those communities and, and break down some barriers? So I'd like to get your thoughts on some of the ways as consultants, you know, not all consultants. I, I know for my, 
my own personal experience, I do consult in indigenous communities and I find it to be a very great learning experience. Every day of ears and eyes wide open and learning so much and contributing their two-way street. You know, they're contributing to my uh, personal growth and hopefully I can provide some value with my consulting services. But what are some of the ways we can, you know, engage the Indigenous population uh, and, and people in in a two-way uh, interdependent, you know, uh, relationship that rises everybody up? Uh, another another great question there, James. Um, a few ways to take a look at this, uh, almost to start off with the word itself. So, uh, a definition that I used to know about the word consultant was along the lines of passing on expertise or knowledge in a professional manner. So, you know, you don't have to be paid, but it's in a professional structured manner that you pass on information, knowledge, or process, etc. Now, Indigenous communities, we will just take 60 seconds on this, but they have a different connection to the word consult, consultation. In Canada, through Different court cases, the Delgama case, 1997, the Haida case, 2004. The the process of consultation in Indigenous communities happens whenever there may be an Aboriginal right that exists, and then the Crown, provincial or federal, thinks they may take an action that could infringe upon that right. And usually related, not exclusively, but usually to aspects of hunting, fishing, trapping, traditional way of life. So if you go into an Indigenous community and you speak about consultation, generally speaking, the communities will have their ears perk up and go, are one of our rights at stake here? You want to consult with us? Because it's a technical legal process in Canada. doesn't apply to anyone else. Just for Aboriginal peoples in Canada, the federal and provincial governments have a duty to consult if they are aware of a potential Aboriginal right and then contemplate an action that just may infringe upon that right. So it's a formal process. It can, some people say it's arduous, it's technical, lawyers involved, structure, spreadsheets, document everything word for word. Whereas that may not be what you're trying to convey to reach out as a consultant. So how do we, you know, use different phraseology? So, um, you know, we most of the time we're doing work in the communities, we're engaging with the communities. Uh, it may sound politically correct or, or technical, but there is a difference. Consultation is a different phrase or a different meaning in so many Indigenous communities, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit. So going into that, uh, determine, you know, how do we maybe engage with communities, you know, to find out what opportunities are there, relationships, uh, business so directly related to relationships because of the history of Canada. And if we had a couple of days, we could walk through this, but uh, we have one community. There are many communities, but indigenous communities uh, we speak to now who have a different level of trust with processes, with government, with perhaps corporate industry, etc. This isn't universal. But there is a little bit of a difference because of the history. So there's a um, one way. Yeah, there's a, takes a little bit of a longer runway to build trust. So if that's the case, then today is the day. You know what? Where wherever it is, you're on Facebook. Get out and get on LinkedIn. You know, take a look at the local nations, Métis communities. Is there someone there that you'd like to put into your network? And today's the day. Engage today. Engage early. And make it repetitive. 
determined just like you would in any other business sense. You're not using your, your powers to be cynical, but it's about relationships. Are there a few Indigenous people you would like to put into your network? Reach out, say hello, offer some content, offer some help. Simply look to build a relationship without asking for anything. I think that's a really wise point because I think, you know, in the past, or maybe it is still going on now where people are seen as, you know, opportunists that there's, there's consulting opportunities within indigenous communities. It makes people uncomfortable on both sides where it's almost a reactive measure where, you know, people don't get engaged until they have a contract. And now, oh boy, I've never worked in a, in an indigenous community before. Now, how do I go about doing this? But I like your, your perspective there is if you've done this consistently and you've engaged with people and you've, you've, actually humanize the process and not just waited till you had a contract or, or something like that, where you can actually, you know, develop these relationships, then they'll build over time. Right. You got it. And, uh, sometimes, um, the, the connection to potential opportunity in a business sense, um, in may involve those partnerships. So reaching out to indigenous leaders in a political business corporate sort of sense in the communities uh opportunity you know arises and do you have your system in place to be able to take advantage of that opportunity i you know I, the number of times i'm approached uh, someone has a project and comes through the email or phone message uh nice to hear you know hope you're doing great uh, flavio it's uh, we got to catch up we got to have coffee I was wondering if you knew anybody, I'm working on a project, then the ask comes in, which I'm happy to support, but um, do you know anybody? We need somebody to help with a project, you know, could, you know, even for myself, I'm just saying, um, not because I'd like to think I'm an expert in in what I do, but I'm also 57 and I've been around, <clears throat> pardon me. So um, uh, I get approached often, maybe you'd be interested and Sometimes, uh, most of the time I am, but it's a matter of time, you know, work-life right. balance. And so I try my best to refer. So if you're looking at opportunity, today's the day to, to begin that engagement. The current um, estimates on uh, contributions to the Canadian economy through Indigenous communities is about $68 billion. The anticipation is that uh, that's growing very fast. It'll very soon be to that space will be a $100 billion contribution. Um, that's kind of like an underwater stream, you know, that nobody really knows about. There's a lot of work and a lot of business being that's going on and expertise has to be transferred. Indigenous communities hire many non-Indigenous consultants and, and people to support their, their goals, be it economic, cultural, self-determination, health consulting, housing consulting, you know, economic job consulting, justice consulting, uh, um, tourism, you know, we were talking about earlier today. So um, the opportunities are there and uh, we, you know, it's incumbent upon yourself to to determine if uh, you'd like to be part of that stream. And I think there's tremendous opportunity for that. Absolutely. And one of the things that I'd like to see, you know, you and I have talked about this with the opportunity that's it's in, in play and, you know, the Indigenous community and the great learning and the the brilliant people that are among the indigenous communities. It's not a one-way street where consultants are coming into indigenous communities to work with, you know, to develop business strategy. I think that, and I hope everybody's listening believes this as well, is that there's just as much value the other way. So if you own a nice. business and part of this audience, 
is not just consultants, but um, the business community at large. If you own a business or, or an aspiring consultant, don't wait to have a consulting engagement with an Indigenous community. Engage Indigenous uh, members of our community, which is Canada, to engage in your business to form policy going forward. So it's a two-way street. And I just want to get your thoughts on that, Flavio, on, it, on how it is a two-way street. And it's not just consultants providing their expertise into, into Indigenous communities. Uh, thank you for that, James. I took a break on the last question because I was talking too much and I had a feeling that you were going to follow up with that one. So thank you very much. And um, absolutely agree. Um, there's, uh, there's, there's tremendous capacity uh, from for Indigenous consultants, professionals to be able to, <clears throat> to bring knowledge and expertise to all kinds of work that's being done in Canada in every avenue. And there may be at this point in time as well, it applies in employment and it has a degree of connection to consultancy as well, is there may be more of a demand for Indigenous consultants to, to just simply be parts of teams than there even is a supply. And that comes for a lot of reasons. Uh, part of it um, in the consultant field has to, has to do with um, uh, the whole life cycle of a consultant. You know, you bring education to the table, you bring experience, you bring knowledge, intuitiveness, you bring EQ. We were talking about that. If you're the most successful consultants would be able to, you know, have human relationships as well. And um, the key component there that may, and also the, the next stage is that um, consultancies, generally speaking, start, you know, sort of in the 40s. You know, people get into their 50s, you have a wide body of experience. And for many reasons, you choose to do things a little bit on your own, maybe moving from an employment standpoint into consultancy. And what goes with that is that the, uh, the level of education at this point in time that 55-year-old Indigenous peoples have, because of history, may be a little bit less than non-Indigenous peoples. <clears throat> the, the gap in education, high school, university is closing. Still can be substantial in some communities, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, but it's closing fast. We're making, no question, we're making progress. But if you were to take a 55-year-old Indigenous professional, chances are that there's going to be fewer that have higher levels of education, but they have 35 years of experience working in the communities. And I would be one of those peoples. I do not have a university degree. I have 25,000 hours of experience in the work. I have lived experience, I have conversational experience. Uh, I have the practical experience of delivering on projects. But um, if education was a part of the component for it, perhaps in the past, I have been you know, left out of that equation. And I can understand that education is very, very important. I have lots of education, but I do not have a degree. Yet, this is changing. So for those, um, those groups that are looking to bring in participation as consultants, um, sometimes a barrier could be that historical aspect of education. Do we, how do we quantify the true experience a little bit more than the educational side? So that's one small component with regards to that. And um, uh, the not just the business aspect of bringing Indigenous consultants into participation or bringing insights, um, there's a lot of culture 
that comes with this, a lot of culture. And I'm say this with, uh, with uh, a bit of, um, you know, imperative is that uh, there's different ways to do business. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a predominantly Western system still exists and I'm, you know, I'm a fan. You know, I grew up with the system. I'm, I'm a fan of the spreadsheet and work plans and everything. I'm, I'm good with that. Yet I've learned in 20 years, different connections to indigenous ways, um, indigenous processes, indigenous knowledge that uh, may be a little bit different than Western processes, but um, equally as effective towards getting certain work done. And in the future, we're going to find a spot where indigenous ways of being, knowing, knowledge are going to inform Western processes, and we're going to get better processes out of this whole equation as time goes on. I'm 100% confident of that. So indigenous perspective within your own organizations, um, we're, we're moving to a different space particularly in British Columbia. I'm going to leave it there, James. Gosh, um, these are great questions. Um, we have the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is law in British Columbia now. What does that mean for consultants, people doing work? You know, I, I could ask 100 British Columbians. I'd be pretty hard-pressed to find one person who's read the UN Declaration. I think as a consultant in British Columbia, if the province is going to bring all their laws into harmony with the UN Declaration, if you do work with government, if you're doing work with schools, if you're doing work with education, if you're doing work with healthcare, if you're doing work with the justice system, uh, you know, you're doing work with a crown corporation, you should learn what this is all about. It's about competitive advantage, not only reconciliation, but just being ahead of the curve. No, I agree with you 100%. And as you know, that uh, certified management consultants were bound by a code of ethics and a code of conduct. And the understanding of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is table stakes. This isn't something that's a nice to know, it's a need to know. And uh, I can speak from my own uh, experience that I have an Indigenous uh, mentor uh, that mentors me in all aspects of business. I pick up the phone, he's a mutual friend of ours, and um, you know provides perspective for me and just uncovers blind spots. And so thankful for Rage Rose help on on this. I'll mention him by name because it's well worth it. So, and and to be acknowledged for the great work that he does, but provides great perspective and to share that within the you know my my business community to say, you know, if you need a different perspective on things, this is how we engage. And I think other consultants could benefit from this, or other people in the in the business community as well to have that and to be inclusive to say, hey, we don't just look for the person who has the uh, degrees and everything, because that that only goes so far. This is a different type of knowledge. And I just want to shift gears here in our conversation to how consulting firms can be more inclusive uh, in their practices to reach out and and not just have someone on retainer that you call once in a while or, you know, as a nice to have, but how do we become more inclusive as businesses or as consulting firms, big or small, to engage uh, Indigenous communities and elders and knowledge keepers or quite frankly, the youth as well, to, to become more actively involved in what we're doing uh, in our day-to-day practices. On, uh, on that question, James, if I, if I have it right, um, there's, um, you know, we can look at it in the, the traditional manners, which may be how do we, you know, support employment. So there may be employment opportunities within your groups or within your projects uh, from the community at large, of course, but uh, to there may be um, 
a wherewithal or part of uh, principles that exist to reach out, bring more Indigenous participation into employment with the project or the team itself. On a business side, there's also the connection to, we spoke about consultants, you know, that, but it's not just that. It could be along the lines of procurement. I mean, we have businesses. We're working, we purchase things we need, you know, we're doing our broadcast from a business uh, business uh, space here. Um, so how can, and it's not easy to find, it takes a little bit of work. We often try to work with the path of least resistance for the things we need to procure to, to, to put into our final product. But uh, can we explore the opportunities to procure from Indigenous businesses as well? Uh, if we if we learn about the history, it's um it's it's just all there. You'll learn how indigenous business on on reserve communities, First Nations communities, was legislated away. It was um it was illegal to sell to anyone who uh was not a member of your reserve community. And this, among a few outcomes, was designed to kill the local economies because the the people would never leave. They would never join the Canadian population if they had economies on the reserves. So the economies were functionally legislated away. So they're rebuilding their economies, their connection to businesses. How can we, you know, all things being equal, the product is a good quality, the price is pretty much the same, the deliverables are on time. Can we support Indigenous businesses in that aspect? That has a connection to reconciliation. Reconciliation is inherently economic. If you take a look at the challenges that exist and we always remember there's so many great things going on in the communities. We got to smile. There's so much positiveness that's happening. But, you know, when we, we take a look at the challenges, they're linked to poverty. You know, really poverty is big time at the root. So uh, uh, how can we support that? So that's employment, that's procurement, that's um, business partnerships. But then how do we take a look and how do we adjust, you know, our policies? What does that mean? Well, Maybe uh, if we're bringing in Indigenous uh, employment, uh, how do we work with, for example, leave policies? In Western uh, societies, we have, okay, you get three weeks off a year and, uh, you know, that builds up, add, add a few days every year, you work through employment, uh, which is also changing, you know, with the gig economy and all kinds of stuff, standard employment is maybe evolving. But for so many communities, uh, we have to, we we take a look when we do business. If I'm going to do business with a company uh, and I'm going to have a meeting, one of the first things I do is I go straight to their website and I find out their mission. You know, if I can find out what their mission is, I'm going to communicate based on their mission. That's what they're about. I know what they value. I know why they're there. So the same thing goes with communities. Well, you know, what's important for them? And cultural survival is big time. So do we provide employment, but how do we modify our, our leave programs to support the times when they have to leave to participate in culture? So maybe a little bit different. Maybe somebody has to leave to go to visit their grandparents to be out on the land and pick berries. And I've been in a personal situation with a wonderful gentleman who kind of rolled his eyes when a young employee said he needed to go pick berries up north. And uh, this young person was called home by his grandmother. And uh, uh, the way the story goes, another story, is uh, he, um, he asked for a week off. The boss wouldn't give it to him. Nice guy. But he said, I just don't get it. It's like picking berries. What's up with this? And 
the young person said, well, if I can't have the week off, sir, then I'm sorry, I can't, uh, can't stay with the employment. And he was about to walk for the door. And then the boss said, uh, son, aren't you afraid to walk out that door? You don't have a job to come back with. We like what you're doing, but you know, aren't you afraid? And the young guy said, yeah, I am, sir. But to uh, tell you the truth, I'm more afraid of my grandma. And so he walked out the door. Wow. Now, there was a good ending to this. He kept his job because we informed the boss that uh, going home to pick berries was important for a number of reasons. But what's going on when a grandmother and a grandson spend time together, four or five hours a day for a week? What goes on when they're hanging out? They talk. It's an oral tradition. Knowledge gets passed on. Cultural aspects, cultural strength, call it, uh, you call it uh, cultural survival. So he wasn't going home to pick berries. This was about the culture surviving. And if your employment goes up against the culture surviving, employment's going to lose a lot of the times. So how do we modify that environment to support the recovery of culture and the integration of communities, you know, transfer of knowledge back and forth? So that may be a way. Um, we taking a look and understanding the, the, the demographics. It's it's another step. Maybe as time goes on, our listeners may, may check out the demographics, an incredibly youthful Mm -hmm. group. Uh, the median age of British Columbians, uh, is around 40.4 years or so. So half the population over 40.4, half under 40.4 on first nations communities on reserve it's very common to have a median age of 25.2. Half the population is under 25 years old. Uh, Métis communities, a little bit older, um, but uh, First Nations communities, very young. So how does that affect your ability to participate? Well, you know what? We, we may be working to, to bring in younger employees than we may have thought to be able to support that. Um, they're the future of, of, of labor in so many smaller British Columbia communities. So if you're looking to, as a, as a consultant, to be able to support industry or to support um, any service sector, the labor in many small communities is becoming more and more skewed towards Indigenous communities year by year by year. I think today's the day to begin to analyze that and prepare the people that we support in those businesses to access the talent in Indigenous communities, because uh, th- those those young people are going to go where they're valued. And so today's the day to build that that value proposition with them, understand and, and share. Absolutely. And, you know, I really love the, the phrase, today's the day. And, you know, I could share a story, um, you know, as consultants, we're familiar with stakeholder maps, right? And typically it's a transactional thing. So who are the stakeholders involved in this business and where does the risk come and how do you benefit stakeholders? Well, as you alluded to and you eloquently shared with us about the cultural aspects of this. One thing that I was thinking of while you're talking is that quite often when we look at stakeholders, we think of the transaction. What economic value does, you know, the stakeholder bring to the the equation? How much, you know, will they contribute or what resources? But it goes far deeper than this. And I was wondering to get your thoughts as I as we was listening to you, what you had to say is that would one step towards truth and reconciliation be to include in a stakeholder map, if you're using that, or to understand a business and see it from that perspective, you know, indigenous communities and what impact does that have in every 
business opportunity, case, feasibility study, business plan, strategic plan, those, you know, those business type, you know, buzzwords, if you will, or those activities that we do. But what are your thoughts on having this as a key stakeholder group in all aspects? I wish I had a pen to take some notes here because it's uh, the the landscape is complex and it's complex because of history. So we shouldn't shy away from that. Anytime any relationship environment is complex, we can look at it that if we're good with that complexity, we have a chance for competitive advantage. So not only doing the right things with reconciliation, but doing good work together. And profit is not a dirty word in so many senses, of course. It's what, what we do with it. So the, the phrase you, you brought up, James, the stakeholder aspect as a quick component. Um, First Nations are not uh, stakeholders in business arrangements, in, in different uh, uh, interactive environments. First Nations are what would be called rights holders. They have constitutionally protected rights. And this is an important distinction, not um, necessarily with regards to a right or wrong or anything, but we want to be respectful. The communities, if uh, if you approach them, uh, for example, we will have valued stakeholders in our equations. There'll be, you know, different business organizations, union groups, academic places, supplying talent. Uh, we will have levels of government, local, municipal, provincial, federal, and we will have the the local nations, perhaps Métis communities as well. So uh, we we work with these stakeholder aspects, but the nations will always be be referred to as rights holders, and they'll they'll look for that distinction to build trust. Now, along the point you made about the transactional nature of relationships, I think that's that's one hundred percent. Thank you for for bringing that up. The communities actively are looking for indicators. They're looking for both uh, in all aspects of communication, digital, print, in person, through conversations, that the relationship that's looking to be established is not transactional. They have been overwhelmed with transactional relationships over the course of 100 years. You know that phrase, I'm, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you is a standard phrase. And we all have heard that and had different connections with how much we believe that. But for Indigenous communities, they have been studied like nobody's business. The phrase coming from their communities, they've been studied to death. The research about them is just relentless on every single metric. And oftentimes these are transactional in nature. Someone comes into the community, they do some work, they leave. Where did they go? Individuals come into the community, perhaps 1960, 1980, 1990, have a really good idea. I think we can work together. We'd like to help you take a look at this. A little bit of work gets done, but where did they go? Or a pilot project took place. We did work together for six months. Oh, where did they go? So they're looking for cues as a, as a really strong generalization for a longitudinal or a long-term relationship. It's not uncommon to sit down at the start of a relationship and say, you know what? Just wanted to share. It really doesn't matter what goes on here today, tomorrow, the next three months. We're here for the long haul. We look forward to a relationship that lasts forever, whatever metaphor we want to use for that. Um, because they're going to invest resources. They're busy. Trust me, the communities are busy. They're running the affairs of nations. And uh, there has to be something in it for them. 
and they're just not transactional aspect just disappears. They're looking, they'll be asking you questions, you know, just to test you. Does it sound like you're going to be around for a while? And there's no problem. There's no, um, there's nothing wrong with just putting that out on the table right at the outset of your building relationships. I'm here to learn. I'm here to, to listen. I look forward to working with the community in any manner that the community sees fit. And I'm here. I'm here forever. As long as, uh, you know, we're together, we may do business, we may not, but it's part of a long-term relationship. And the last part you mentioned there with regards to how do we gather that form of knowledge, how do we bring it together, you know, working together on the mapping aspect, I encourage everyone to take a look at um, a set of principles and just I might jot it down, maybe tomorrow, maybe in a month or two, and they're called the OCAP principles. So OCAP is a process designed by the First Nations Information Governance Center out of Algonquin College back east. And it's uh, linked to this phrase that you're going to hear more and more as the months and years go by for um, the phrase is data sovereignty. So it's uh, historically speaking, we mentioned Indigenous communities have been studied to death on every metric that exists in socioeconomic aspects of society, health, everything. And so much of the information that has been gathered, they've had no control over how it's going to be used. And not just how it's going to be used for a specific outcome for the research itself, but once that research is gathered, it's stored in a report, put on someone's server, it might be industry, it might be government. But if it's uh, with government, access to information will allow any organization to go in and get a copy of that research. I'm not saying that's good or bad, but the communities have been met so many times all across Canada where research has been done for Project A. It was helped out to deliver a good result with Project A. But then three years down the road, Project B came along and the nations have said, we're not, we don't like Project B. But a proponent, an industry group, a company or government has used the research from Project A to justify Project B. So the information that was gathered years earlier can come back for a project that the community believes may harm them. So they're looking to be absolutely involved with every aspect of research about them. From the design of the research, the carrying out of the research, gathering, aggritizing, analyzing, putting it into a report, and then ownership, control, access, and possession, OCAP. Who keeps that data and who provides permission for other groups to use it in the future? Right. So I think that's uh, that's something cool for people to look at. And you mentioned with regards to the, you know, there's a, you know, uh, uh, table stakes with regards to the UN declaration. We have an action plan here in BC. And if you take a look at it, 89 points, if you do work with the provincial government or any entity that aligns with the provincial government, you'll just see the words everywhere. Co-design, co-manage, co-deliver. And that's not a bad summary for the conversation we're having. Just when you're thinking of an idea, don't run with it too far. Reach out to the community. See what they think. Co-design, co-manage, and co-deliver the work. And I think that's a little bit what we've been talking about so far today, too. Yeah, absolutely. And I can provide an example. I alluded to it earlier, but I had a, uh, a group that I was working with, uh, a client of mine. They were planning a conference here in Kelowna. And they had all the right intentions. They they were coming to Kelowna to to have their conference. And then I saw the logo they had 
presented for the conference and it was cobbled together uh, with uh, using indigenous artwork and um, spelling of, of Kelowna in an indigenous way. And I, I called them and asked them, did you get, you know, who created this and how did you get this information? And they said, oh, we, we had the right intention. It was here. We just wanted to indig- put an indigenous lens on this, but they, they had the right intention, but they didn't have, they didn't do it appropriately. So I contacted uh, other mentors of mine. I'll mention them by name is Moccasin Trails Consulting. So Greg Hoff and, and Frank Antoine, and they got involved and they became part of the conference right through, not, you know, as, as they've told me and Greg tells me several times, and he's right, is that, it's not just good enough to be invited in to do a territorial acknowledgement at the start of the conference. They actually were involved right through co-designing, co-managing, co-delivering. So it's a really good example. And now they're, they have a seat at the table with this particular organization in creating anything that they do as far as their policy and that type of thing. So serendipitously it happened just kind of as a fluke, but it turned out to be a really good outcome because, you know, the client organization didn't have bad intention. They thought they were doing something appropriate, but it wasn't appropriate through that lens. And now it's given an opportunity where uh, Greg and Frank have had the chance to come in and do that. So, you know, rather than find out, you know, the, the wrong way that just has a good outcome, there's are ways that you can go in there and, and, and actually engage uh, to make this part of, we talked table stakes earlier, to be a part of this right from the start. So when you're planning something, how do you co-manage, co-deliver, you know, and co-create this, right? Yeah. And as we look, uh, sometimes we look back, everything we're talking about here today is common sense. Right. It's common human relationship building sense. But uh <clears throat> going to put this out on the air. I share it all the time. It's whether it's Harvard or Stanford, someone is going to offer in the future a degree in human common sense. I think it's going to, you're going to get to to have a specialty coming out of university with human common sense because we're sort of moving away from that type of stuff. You know, the type of common sense that would say, hey, you know, be careful if you live on 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 the side of the hill where you rely on one bridge. You know, if the bridge goes down, well, you don't complain. You chose to live where there's one bridge. That's like human common sense was there for hundreds of years, but we're kind of missing out. Don't build on a floodplain. I'm not sure. I hope everybody's safe who's on a floodplain, but, you know, that once in 250 year flood is going to hit. You're not going to beat nature. So, you know, we'll, uh, everything we're working today with are things we can, we can all do. They don't cost money. They just take some time and they take brain work. And I don't think any of us are afraid of that. No, and I think that's a great point to to end our conversation here today. Of course, the conversation never ends. We know that, right? It always continues. But for the for the sake of the the podcast, uh, Flavio, this is great uh, for our listeners today. If they want to reach out to you or engage, what's the best way for people to get in contact with you or any other resources that you recommend uh, that you can share with our listeners here today? Yeah, that's um, one of the things that comes from an indigenous sort of world view, and it's not universe, it's just generalization, is it's a relatively humble group of people. Even the introductions that people do aren't based on status and education and, and you know, degrees and associations, but where are you from? 
and I'd like to know where you're from. So uh, still at 57 years old, it's not easy for me to do these things, but we sure do try our best to do incredible work through Indigenous corporate training. I have a strong relationship with the group, Bob Joseph Jr. and Cindy and others working there. Uh, we've created, um, and we're always listening, always improving, just forms of education, that's consultation, engagement, Indigenous awareness, uh, uh, negotiation, understanding the UN declaration. So you can reach out to me through there for that uh, that work, and I can I can put that process into play. And um, also, I just encourage people say this all the time, James. I know you've done this, and our mentors have done this, and Ray is a mentor of mine as well. Um, is we we put ourselves out and say, hey, if you ever need some help, if you need some advice, you know, if I can point you in the right direction, send me a note. And I bet you if I've said that a thousand times, 20 people have taken me up on it. So I'm sharing, just reach out right away. If you think you can gain something from Flavio Caron, send a note, reach out on LinkedIn. You just have to type in Flavio Vancouver. And I mean, I think there's two of us. Uh, so you'll find me. But uh, Flavio at ictinc.ca. So that would be ictinc.ca. And uh, send a note. It doesn't have to be for any reason other than you might have a question you'd like to keep in touch. I think we understand how good, how important networking is. And I'm just sharing, network, reach out. It'd be an honor. And I have as much to learn from business people as you may learn from me. So it's not a one-way relationship. I'm asking you to send a note because I can learn from others as well. It's been wonderful and honor and a privilege to share time with you today, Flavio. And as always, Great dialogue. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely appreciate it. Thank you, James, for your good work. And uh, I, I don't put, it, put out those comments uh, too freely. So thank you for yourself and your organization here in British Columbia for, for this, uh, you know, great work. It's going on. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the CMC podcast, Your Expert Advantage, brought to you by CMC Canada. CMC Canada administers and its provincial institutes confer the Certified Management Consultant designation in Canada. And the Certified Management Consultant designation, CMC, is the profession's only international certification recognized in over 40 countries. You can learn more about what it takes to earn your Certified Management Consultant designation and all the benefits that come with joining CMC Canada on our website, cmc-canada.ca. If you are a fan of this podcast, tell someone about us or leave us a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Thank you all for listening today and we'll see you next time.